The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us all here safely this morning, gathering us here to experience you corporately in this body, and also then to hear from you corporately and, I trust, personally from your word. It is your word, as was prayed earlier. We ask you to carry it forward. We are praying now to you, asking you to carry it forward. Will you send your spirit here to this place, to this this room to each of us individually in the chair in which we sit and carry your word to us to speak your truth. We depend on you for that. You are God. And we can talk to you in hope, knowing that you have given your word that it might be communicated to us clearly, that we might hear it be affected by it, grown and changed. So I imagine that in this room, Lord, there are people here who come from all kinds of different places. Many of us know you and have known you for some time. Some perhaps newly so, and some perhaps don't know you personally yet. And to each one here, this passage speaks, will you carry it home to us? Spirit of God, clear away all barriers, clear away all, all distractions that may block us from hearing you speak to us. Clear them away. Father, commission him to clear them away that your word might have its full effect, that Christ may be honored, that your people may be gathered in and built up. So we ask you to do this morning, and we give thanks to you, that we can ask that of you that you want to hear us, we can ask it of you in confidence that you want to speak, we can ask it of you knowing that you have promised to build your church, so do it this morning, please, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We return this morning to our study of the Gospel of Luke, picking up where we left off several weeks ago, the end of chapter 12. Throughout this chapter, Jesus, as we've seen, has been interacting with a mixed crowd of people. In the crowd, there are his disciples, those who are followers of his, those who are, who are on board, and then also there are many who are very, very angry with him and are constantly looking for, plotting for, really, his downfall, looking for a way to destroy him. And then in the middle of those two extremes, there are thousands, this is a very large crowd, thousands of people who are somewhere on the spectrum, not angry, but not embracing him. Kind of holding off, suspending judgment, theoretically because they are are thinking, because they are examining him, but that that reluctance itself is, is a sign, a bad sign. They're not on board. They're not violently against him, but they're not on board. 
That's most people. That, that's the crowd, this wide spectrum. And so as we've seen, back and forth, Jesus addresses different remarks to different segments of this crowd. Most recently, verses 35 to 48, what we saw I think three weeks ago, passage right before this one this morning, he's speaking to his followers, to his disciples, about the importance of being ready for his coming and about what faithful service to him looks like while waiting for his coming. He'd held that up in front of them, and they can understand it in some sense. They know he's talking about the future and his coming, but they don't really fully understand it because they don't know as much as we know. They don't understand that he's going to be departing. They don't understand the cross and the ascension and the second coming. So they get it, but don't really. We, we understood a little more of that and know what, it, what it's like now to wait for his return. But he's pointing them ahead to a, to a time of waiting, pointing them ahead to something about the future. So that's on the table, a future orientation. And that's what's still on the table this morning as we come to this passage. He's still talking to his disciples, still looking ahead at the future. That's where the remarks are going to be first addressed. And then he'll, he'll change and, and take what he just said to his followers and apply them to the crowd at large. So he's going to speak to the, the, the in-group and then the on-looking group, both, making kind of this common point. If I were to try to pull it all together this morning, here's my main, my main point for this morning. Jesus calls those who are currently followers and those who are not yet followers to think very seriously about the nature of his mission. So he's calling all of us to think very seriously, to think very carefully about the nature of his mission. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. This is Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49 and going to the end of the chapter. Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Words of Jesus in Luke 12. Here's the first observation. I'm going to make two observations. The first one from the first paragraph. The true mission of Jesus divides the world before it heals it. The true mission of Jesus divides the world before it heals it. 
In the first paragraph, as we saw, he's, he's still talking to his disciples, and he addresses them, addresses for them and, and for us, the church, the nature of his true mission. He mentions this twice, touches on it twice. Verse 49, he begins, I came to, talking about mission, and then he asks a rhetorical question on 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? So he's talking about coming. He came to the world, that's clear. He's not of the world, he's not of the creation, he's outside of it. He is the eternal Son of God, and he came into the creation, came into the world. What we just celebrated at Christmas, he came as a baby, but he existed before and outside of it. He's come now in flesh to dwell among us, why? Not to bring peace on earth. That's his answer in verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. Using that phrase, that I tell you, we've looked at this a bunch of times before. That's, that's the, the personal authority of Jesus underlining something. Uh-uh, nope. On my own authority, I tell you, I did not come for that reason. I did not come to bring peace to the earth, to which we may respond right away, What? Didn't we just read and sing about that at Christmas? I mean, that was like less than two weeks ago. We're singing and reading joy to the earth and peace on earth, goodwill towards men, that again and again and again. And you say no. And haven't we seen that kind of that very sort of thing all throughout the gospel of Luke so far? Jesus is coming with indiscriminate compassion and love, and he is healing and restoring and healing and restoring and renewing and bringing, weren't we talking about shalom, peace, bringing this foretaste of this shalom, this peace of God to earth as he restores people, restores relationships and communities, casts out evil and fixes. It's all about peace and love and joy and oneness, isn't it? But you say, no, what? Well, of course, yes. In one sense, we have seen all of that because all of that is true. That is Jesus. That is what he is. And so, yes, in one sense, that's why he came. He came and he did that. So, on purpose, not didn't stumble into it. Yes, if we look at the smaller picture, he did come to do all of those things we have seen. And we sing the song and read the verses at Christmas, and that it's true, but we must understand that's the small picture, and it sits in a larger, bigger context. And Jesus is talking about the larger, bigger context. That's what helps us understand all the smaller things that are going on, the songs that we sing, the, the stories that we've just been reading about for these past chapters. The bigger truth, the fuller picture is, as he says on his own authority, no, I did not come to give peace to the earth, but rather division. Let me say here as an aside, there's a lot of there's a lot of things, there are a lot of things I'm going to say, a lot of verses I'm going to read, a lot of statements I'm going to make that are weighty, that are difficult. And I want to point out, if, if you have one of the types of Bibles that has red and black ink in it, all of this is in red ink. Which means, Jesus said this. So we have to say, at every, at every point we say, I don't know, we've got to say, but Jesus said this. So at every step, there's a, 
Not only is it in the bigger points, not only is it in my main point, think seriously. At every little step here, there is a hold on and think about that one more time. But Jesus said this. I did not come to bring peace, but division. Not division for division's sake. He's not just coming to mess up all kinds of relationships and connections. It's division that is a ramification of his true mission. He did not come to give peace, but another way we could put it is verse 49. Didn't come to bring peace, but I did come to cast fire on the earth. Which sounds ominous. Jesus said this. Which sounds ominous. What, what does he mean? What is that? Well, here is his mission expressed in a powerful image. He's referring to something that has not yet happened at the time that he's speaking. So we haven't seen it so far in the Gospel of Luke. It has not yet happened because he says, I would that it were already kindled, but it isn't yet. So I wish that it was here. I wish that I, I was about that right now, but, but it's not here. He's talking about something in the future that has not yet been kindled, a word that fits well with fire, but which maybe we take kindled, it kind of shapes perhaps how we're thinking about fire cast. When we, modern people, we hear fire cast on the earth, we've seen too many movies and played too many video games to think of anything but a wizard and a fireball thrown onto the earth. Kindled, though, gives you a different image. Fireball is a great big ball of fire, I suppose, if such a thing existed, that arrives in full blaze and goes boom. Kindled starts small with twigs and a little flicker and then becomes a big fire. He's talking about kindling something, about lighting a fire that will start small but will become big. It will become fire on all of the earth. It'll be a worldwide fire. It'll consume as fire does, but it won't start as a massive fire. It'll start kindled, start small. And he wants to, he wishes that it were kindled already. But it isn't, not yet. In fact, it can't be yet. Because as he's speaking, at the moment he's speaking, there's something else that must happen first. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Until it is finished. Jesus tells us here that he is anxiously eager. He is greatly distressed. He's creating this image for us of impatiently looking forward to something that, he, that he's like that for. Waiting. Come on, come on, come on. I want it to be finished. A baptism, a personal baptism that he eagerly wants to get done. Not a literal baptism of water. That's already happened. It's a baptism of himself, some other sort, that he wants to be finished. And I said that because the word here is related to that phrase he used on the cross. And would that it were accomplished, would that it were finished. The immersing of himself, what's he talking about here? The baptism of himself, that word baptism, submersion, immersion into, sticking into, plunging into the flood streams, the flood waters of God's judgment. 
all through the Old Testament, ever since Noah, the ark, and the world was plunged into the floodwaters of God's judgment. And think of Jonah plunged into the depths as God judges him for three days. All through the Old Testament, the floodwaters of God's wrath are a constant image used for judgment. And Jesus is longing to be baptized like that. He's looking forward to, eagerly longing for, wants to get it finished, to be thrust into the depths of God's wrath and then brought out alive again out from under it. In other words, he's looking forward to the cross. When he will experience the baptism of wrath, after which he can kindle the fire that is about his true mission. That's what he's getting at here. That's what he's telling us, which probably shouldn't surprise us. We're maybe a little bit familiar with that, just in general, but it also might make you think about what John the Baptist said was going to be the case for the one coming. Has John the Baptist been in your mind? You've been thinking about this, the fire? should be, because John talked about this. Now, it's been, for us, at the glacial speed with which we're, we're moving, it's been a long time since chapter 3. You know, I don't know how long ago that was, but if we were reading it as a letter, it would have been just a few minutes ago. John the Baptist, describing in, in his preaching, talking about a coming day of God's judgment, calling all of the nation of Israel, all who will come and listen, calling them to repentance and warning them about a coming day of judgment when God would, figuratively speaking, cut down every tree that bears bad fruit and throw it into what? The fire. John's not going to do that. John's just a messenger coming before to warn about that. He's baptizing people to show the inclination of their heart, to show their allegiance with what he's talking about. But, though it's not John, he said, there's one coming after me who is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. But this one who's coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he pictures him there in, John, in Luke chapter 3, like an ancient farmer gathering in his harvest. Ancient farmer who gathers his wheat harvest onto his threshing floor and would beat the wheat to break apart the husk, to separate the chaff from the kernel, and then with his winnowing fork in hand, says John of this Messiah, he'll throw up the grain cause the chaff to be blown away into the unquenchable fire that he kindles. That's Luke 3, talking about Jesus, who was yet to come. He'll have an unquenchable fire that will burn up the chaff as he gathers into his barn the separated out grain, or to change the image, as he gathers into his kingdom, his people, his people that are cleansed from all evil, separated out and burned away. That's what Jesus came to do and what he is eager to do. And he cannot do it until he first goes to the cross. Why not? Because without the cross, 
without the cross, that unquenchable fire, you picture the farmer in the farmyard standing at the threshing floor, and you know there's a fork in the road. As he grabs his winnowing fork, he tosses it, and it goes like this. The grain goes this way and the chaff into the barn, and the chaff goes this way into the fire. But without the cross, every single one of us, every single one of us, is in the chaff that goes to the fire. The Bible is completely clear in Old and in New Testament. Think of Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament. There is no one good, no, not one. All have turned away and have together become worthless like chaff. Worthless because we don't have any talents, any abilities, because we never do anything noble and good? No. All have turned away and have become worthless. It is the turning away from God, the rejecting of God's rule over us and the setting up of self as authority. That's what makes us worthless in the eyes of the king and sends us all towards the fire. That's our universal future. But for, look at this, but for the driving grace of God. This is Jesus. And you see in 49 and in 50, you see these, these dual tensions. I really, really, I am eager Oh, would that the fire were already kindled, and would that I was harvesting in my people. Jesus has come to gain for himself a kingdom. But first, I'm, I'm like this inside, wanting to go to the cross. Are you out of your mind? You want to go to the cross? Yes. That's what gets me the kingdom. If he wanted to skip the cross, he wouldn't have a kingdom. He wouldn't have any people. So he goes to the cross so that our turning away that rightly deserves the judgment of God will be rightly, justly judged on another. This is the gospel. And it is extremely good news. And it is hope for us. Because when we read Jesus eager to kindle the fire, we know the next verse says, but first he's going to go to the cross that he may bear the fire himself so to speak. That he will be plunged under God's wrathful judgment instead of those who trust him. There's a way out of the fire and into the kingdom because Jesus is anxious. He is in great distress. He is earnest that it be finished. That he be baptized with God's wrath himself in place of me and of you if you trust him. This is the grace of God. This is the good news of God, that he comes to earth seeking a purified people and a purified kingdom, and of course, finding neither, first goes to the cross to make such ones and to make a kingdom. That is good news. That is good news. Didn't have to be. There didn't have to be a verse... 50, he could have just said, I'm going to wipe out all this. But he didn't. 
that is good news. He has now gone to the cross. He has undergone that baptism and has been raised up out of the depths, come up out of the grave, and he sits reigning, and the fire has now already been kindled. It is not yet in full conflagration. It is not yet the day of judgment. But as the Gospel of John says, the Spirit of God now is at work all throughout the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, if you will, giving us a whiff of the smoke from the fire. It's not here yet. It's burning and coming. Hearing that message, the world will resist to different degrees in different ways. And obviously that has ramification for the world. And we're going to talk about that. That's kind of on that point. That's how he pivots to the second half of this passage. But we pause here to think about this is all said to his disciples. This is said to, to the church. What's the point for this here for us? Well, it's here. As Jesus takes it, and a lot of things we could do with this, but as Jesus takes it, the direction in which he takes it, it's here to help us think seriously about interpersonal division in the context of mission and harvest. Being human, all of us cringe at social awkwardness, interpersonal alienation, division, we don't like that. We, we shrink back from it. It feels bad. At the very least, it feels bad. Sometimes it feels incredibly painful. And we really, we really want to know, we really want to live like, you know, can't we all just get along? So we want. And wanting that, we are often inclined to choose a course that will get us to get along. And sometimes that means we're going to say things or do things that we really shouldn't, that aren't true, that are deceptive, that are wrong, just to make peace. And of course, the Bible does teach us that as far as it is up to us, we should be at peace with all people. We're supposed to be. As far as it's up to us. We're supposed to be peacemakers. We're supposed to heal discord and division. We are supposed to love others, even our enemies. Never to be unloving in our behaviors or our attitudes. Never to be, to be harsh or rude or personally offensive. But what Jesus is getting at and laying in front of us as people and calling us to think seriously about is sometimes, fundamentally, it's not about you at all. As far as it's up to you, be at peace, but sometimes it's not about you at all. Because Jesus is doing something here. This is about what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the farmer gathering in the harvest. It's the message about Jesus, it's the exclusivity of Jesus. That's, that's the message, that's the deal. And Jesus at work, bringing in his harvest, 
harvesting people into his kingdom. It is the story of harvest, but the story of harvest is also the story of separation. All through harvesting is separation. Husk separated from kernel physically on the floor in a pile but broken apart. Wind, the fork tosses it up but the wind blows it away and then it goes into the fire. There is separation all along the way in harvest. He gathers in the grain, yes. But that will mean division. And that's hard for us to think about. Because, of course, that's what's behind every form of persecution. If those who divide from us over Jesus have power and decide to use it against us, that will be persecution of some sort or another. And it looks different in an American office place than it does in a village in Pakistan or in India. But it's behind all persecution, and we sense that, we know it. We, we shrink back from it. But we also read these verses in particular and can sense the pain in that. Because the division is not just going to be out there. The division may well even be in our very homes. He talks about nuclear family here and some in-laws and says this is going to happen. Division. Even at the level of marriage and children. Now, Jesus did not come, as I said, it's not division for division's sake. He did not come to break up marriages. The rest of the Bible is clear. Think of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about marriage and says, if you find yourself in a situation where you are a believer married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to stay, you stay. Marriage still is, till death do us part. But understand, even while that marriage may be, may be sweet and amicable and, and kind in many ways, there will be yet still a division at this core level. One will be for Jesus and one not. And that's going to hurt. Parents, a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, etc. He's not coming to say, disown one another and, and break up the family, but he's saying, even while you, if you have a child or if you have a parent who, in, in every other way you can imagine, is, is sweetly united to you and is, is your friend and you enjoy, there will still be this issue of Jesus between you. And that will hurt. I don't have to tell some people in this room about that. You completely get it. You tell me about it. That will hurt. Because you will know in every moment of every day, we are about really different things. At the, at the bottom level, we have different affections. We have different loves. We have different masters. And unless this one that I love and pray for, unless this one changes, we are headed to different places. And that hurts to think about. 
So what do you do with that? Well, at this point, there are a few things we could say. First, the passage doesn't tell us exactly what to do with that. If you ask, though, what, what should I do to live in that situation? Let me point you back to the Sermon on the Mount. Love. How do I cope with this person on different pages with me? Love them, love them, love them. Love them well, love them thoroughly. Lay down your life for them. Sometimes that's, we need to hear that because sometimes in the hurt, animosity, friction grows and, and we get frustrated that they don't agree with us, that they don't want the same things we want, that they kind of oppose, if you're a parent, they oppose how you want to parent. They oppose how you want to live. You get frustrated, lay down your life for them and love them. If you ask, well, how do I in my heart deal with with the, the pain, with the heartache of this, of this division, not just between in my family, but people who are, who were my friends. How do I deal with this? Well, then I might say, as with every other thing, we could look back at 9 and 10 and say, where Jesus calls us to lay down our lives, he promises to give us a life back. To give us back himself. So what we have to do is we, we hide our hearts in God as we do in everything when we face a hardship. How do I find heart help? I hope in God, not the circumstance. So it is possible to live in the division, to know how to wisely live in love, to know how to be sustained in life, leaning on God. But none of that's actually here. Jesus' whole point right here is to alert us to the fact and call us to count the cost. You follow a Savior who was crucified outside the city. We will share in the outsider crucified life to some degree. And that is not because of you. It's because of him. And he knows that and willingly embraces that path for himself and for us. So we have to think seriously about that, Christian. Do we long to make peace? Do we love people? Absolutely, 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 absolutely. Do we be gracious to others? Do we bless them? Absolutely. And do we think that's going to fix it all and we'll all be happily ever after in the world? Absolutely not. We entrust ourselves to him, and we follow him outside the city. There will be division in the world. And maybe that helps us to long for the place where there isn't. Because there is going to be a place where there isn't, you know. There is going to be a place where there isn't any more division. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, and bring that full kingdom of shalom when, when that is what we know. But it's not going to be the case now. So be aware of this Christian. And the second observation then. This is shorter. The world should take seriously 
the true mission of Jesus before it is too late. The world should take seriously the true mission of Jesus before it is too late. In 54, he turns and it says he said also to the crowds. So he picks a couple of simple, common weather examples here. You look at the clouds and you understand them. You make the connection. You know what's coming. You, you sense the wind and you, you make the connection. You know what to expect. You are perfectly capable of and, in fact, very experienced in interpreting your environment. End of verse 56. So why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The phenomenon of cloud and wind is not any easier or any more clear than, than all the signs of demon cast out and dead brought back to life and nature commanded and controlled and lame made to walk and blind made to see and on and on and on and on. The signs of the kingdom are crystal clear. You guys have all seen them, he says to the crowd. The signs of God that, that God said in the Old Testament would come when Messiah came. And sometimes, Jesus could say, sometimes I've even quoted the verses to, to make the connection explicit right in front of you. So how is it that you don't know how to interpret that? It's a question, of course. It isn't really a question. It's an accusation. He called them all hypocrites, which is never a compliment. I actually read that in a, in a commentary. <laughs> they bothered to say that. <laughs> I think we all get that. He is not complimenting them when he calls them hypocrites. It's intended to be an accusation. And again, Jesus said this. Not even Luke, not me. Jesus assesses that's the problem. That's the problem in interpreting the, the signs all around. You know, why is it that you can do the wind and the, the weather, etc., but you can't do this? It's not an intellectual problem. It's not a, a sign problem. Hypocrisy is the problem. He makes that clear by accusing them. So what's the hypocrisy? Well, we need to listen to this because, of course, this reaches into today. Because he's talking about all kinds of people who are very effective at interpreting the weather signs and reading the stock market and understanding medical reports and understanding interpersonal cues and all of those people like us who are really good at that but not so good at interpreting Jesus. All kinds of people today even he would make the similar accusation of hypocrisy. So what, what's hypocritical? Well, people say they are very spiritual and very religious and very interested in God and his kingdom and interested in following him and interested in befriending him and obeying him and serving him and doing good in the world and going to heaven when they die. People say that. And people say they are very logical and reasonable and fact-based and concerned to follow the evidence to wherever it leads them. People say that. But here's all the evidence about the most important spiritual issue ever. Right in front of us all. The evidence of the historical accuracy, reliability of this book, it's not even accurate to say it surpasses that of every ancient book. Surpasses, blows away, 
makes minuscule and irrelevant every other historical ancient book. This is the Word of God. So when they saw with their own eyes, we read with our own eyes. Further, the evidence of all that Jesus did that showed the hand, the power of God at work in him. And then on top of that, we see the evidence of what they have not yet seen at this point, the cross and the tomb empty, historical fact witnessed by hundreds as Jesus hung out with people for 40 days post-resurrection, alive again, a dead man alive again, a fact of history. And those hundreds of people became the early church, not, notice this carefully, not because they were persuaded of a message, but because they saw with their own eyes. That's totally different than any other religion. Other religions certainly have devoted followers who have believed the message. These guys, contrary to what they believed, dead men don't live, contrary to what they believed, saw with their own eyes. This one does. Hmm. And they became the church that has existed ever since, even to today. Here's the evidence. And yet the world does not consider the evidence because hypocritically, is what Jesus is getting at, it isn't actually concerned with evidence. That's not the issue. People say that's how they work, but they don't. It's a heart desire problem. The world does not want the kingdom of Jesus because the world correctly detects if the kingdom of Jesus is, then my kingdom is not. And we drastically fear that. We think that the kingdom of Jesus will be the end of life for me. It'll be the end of anything joyful and good and, and anything desirable. That has been the lie of Satan ever since the beginning and it has taken hold of us and it's so natural to how we look at life. We believe it thoroughly, but it is not true. This God is good. This is the God who is good. This is the God who is the God of grace, as we say, the God of mercy, who while clearly saying, we saw this earlier in Luke, while clearly saying, you must come to me laying all of your life on the table, lay it all down, die to yourself, put it all in front of me, which sounds extremely demanding, but listen to the promise that comes right after that. Lay it all down and I will give back to you real life. I will give to you life everlasting, life that is full of meaning and purpose and hope and me now and forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I, will, I will put you on the path that goes away from the fire that is kindled. Can you smell the smoke? Away from that fire and into the barn, into the kingdom, into life. That's why I came. Come to me. It is a lie planted in us, pressed into us. It feels so very natural that that's... that's the command of ripoff. It's the offer of life. Come to him and live. May God open your eyes. May the Spirit of God open your eyes and cause you to see this is where hope lies. Listen to this and see it and take it seriously while there is still time. Which is what brings us to the last paragraph. You might expect Maybe, after the word hypocrite, there might be like some little like flexing of muscles because this feels like a moment when a religious person, maybe the preacher, maybe Jesus, should go wham and 
hound, the hypocrite. And certainly Jesus can pound hypocrites when their hypocrisy is hurting other people. But he doesn't pound them here. He points out the problem, and then 57 invites you to think about it for yourselves. It's a call to pause and think this through for yourself. Think seriously. What's right? Think about this. While there's still time. That's what 58 and 59 take us. While there's still time, you stand accused of something. Right here, you stand accused. I just called you hypocrite. You stand accused. Would say Jesus, not me. Would say Jesus. When's the time to make right something you stand accused of? Think about this. After you've been arrested, after you've been hauled in the court, after you've been tried, after you've been convicted, after you've been imprisoned, then you try to make it right? Too late. What he puts in front of them is the image of a debtor's jail, a debtor's prison. Everybody in his day would have known debtor's prison is a dead end because you can't get out by offering to pay 10% down and then put me on a payment plan. The reason you're in debtor's prison is that you already had that chance and blew it. You've proven untrustworthy with debt. We're not going to give you that option again. You've got to pay every last penny, every last cent of the debt before you get out of debtor's prison. How do you make an income in debtor's prison? You don't. Almost everybody who goes there stays there forever. So don't go there. Deal with it. Finish it off beforehand. That's the whole point of his illustration. When's the right time to deal with this? Beforehand, while there's still time. There isn't time later. Beforehand. So judge for yourselves what's right. Deal with it beforehand. There is a fire that has been kindled and it is coming and it has not yet reached and consumed everything. There is still time and there is still an offer of one who has undergone the baptism of God's wrath himself so that you won't have to if you trust him. If you cast yourself on him, you'll live today, 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 today. Look at the signs and see this Jesus. Look at the empty tomb that says this payment works. It breaks you free from death and gives you life. It is the greatest of all signs. See the changed lives of the early church and the current church, the changed lives of those who have walked with Jesus and live. The logic of it all is clear, and today is the day to give it serious and careful consideration. So turn to Jesus today. While there's still time, trust Christ. Say, Lord, I'm yours. Here, I'm yours. Save me, give me life. And he will. That's why he came. He came to give people life. If he came to judge people, it'd be done already. He came to give people life, to gather people into his kingdom. That would be you if you'd trust him today. So trust him.
and be saved and know him as a, as a good and gracious Savior. Let me pray for you, for us, towards that end. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And Jesus, thank you for not considering equality with God something to be that must be held onto, but you are willing to humble yourself, to come to earth, to come even to undergo the baptism of death that we should have undergone that you may offer to us a second path away from the fire and into the kingdom, into life. Thank you for doing that. And thank you, Spirit of God, for being at work now in the world to make that clear to people, to make clear to us our need and to make clear to us the beauty and sweetness and truth and mercy of Jesus' offer. So Father, Son, and Spirit, will you call us to believe Maybe some here who do not believe yet, call them in, Lord. Some who hear this elsewhere, call them in, Lord. And for those who are already believers, would you call us to walk with you and trust you, even through division and difficulty? Will you come? Will you come now in power and affect change in our lives? And will you come again in the day that you promise? Set up the fullness of your kingdom. We look for that day, Lord, and ask you to come bring it. Thank you. We trust you and we love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.